0: You're listening to Worldbuilding for Masochists.
1: And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves.
2: Because the illusion of total control helps chase away some of the existential dread. I'm Natanya Barron.
1: I'm Rowena Miller. I'm Marsha Ryan Moresca.
3: I'm Cass Morris, and this is episode 72. This is Cerulean, right? Fashion, politics, and a power.
0: Welcome, Natanya. We are so excited to have you here joining us today. Would you mind introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about your work?
2: Sure, absolutely. So I am a fantasy writer, first and foremost. I've been writing fantasy for most of my writing career. and much of what I do is historically based, or at least uh, even if I try to write secondary world, I always feel the compunction to ensure that things could be plausible. So that sends me down lots and lots and lots of research wormholes. And I've kind of come to embrace that. Uh, I used to kind of fight against it a little bit, but these days uh, I really find a lot of joy in the minutiae. Even if it never makes it to the page, it kind of settles my very ADHD brain. So um, my most recent book is called Queen of None, and it was a feminist retelling of the Arthurian tale, uh, with the main character being Arthur's sister, Anna, who was in really old text, but kind of disappears. And I thought, Hey, this is a cool opportunity to write a character. And I joke that it was the thesis that I never got to write in, in graduate school, um, which won an award, which was pretty cool and had wonderful reviews, but I have been publishing for a little over 10 years now. And, uh, yeah, the fashion history and world building are absolutely imprinted in my DNA at this point.
0: Well, and you do fun fashion threads on Twitter, um, which is, I think, how we knew you were, like, one of our people, like, <laughs> here's, here's someone obsessing about something that could be very world building. So <laughs> what draws you to clothing, like, as a feature of world building?
2: You know, I, the, the more that I research it, the more that I realize it really is the backbone of civilization. And I think it's something that's quite often we take for granted because in the modern era, we really don't see the production of material. It's just something we, we literally call it material culture, right? It's just literally stuff that lives... We don't consider it. I mean, c- occasionally people get upset about sweatshops, but everyone still goes to Target. But, you know, up until really, you know, 60 years ago, the creation, the f- agriculture, the societal impacts of Fashion had everything to do, and this goes back all the way to you know prehistory. To we, we know that people were adorning their their clothing and creating clothing uh, in the fossil records or not the well the archaeological records anyway. And to me, it really does bring an incredible light into politics and gender and performance, but also how, what a culture does and how they are how they approach fashion makes a lot of it's, it's very important. And to me. You know, Thread Talk, which is what I do on Twitter, came about because I I was actually diagnosed with ADHD last year and I kind of was like, you know what, I'm just going to lean into this and see if other people are interested. I'm just going to share these deep dives that I do. And I was writing a Regency romance at the time and was looking into the chintz, right? Chintz was a big deal and the history of that. And, of course, the first thing that happens is you realize how much colonialism and industrialism have to do with these things that we just joke like, oh, that ugly chintz pillow...
1: You hey, don't realize that.
2: Ugly this, yeah. excuse. I know people. I know. I know. <laughs> it's I adore chintz. I get so excited when I find it. But yeah, it is so, so much our history as well as, you know, fantastical history. And I feel like I have a responsibility to tell people that stuff. And sure enough, it's actually helped grow my Twitter uh, following and, and connect me to people in ways that nothing to this point ever has.
0: Yeah. I mean, I feel like it's kind of a nutty thing, but if, if you can... Explain what your characters are wearing and why they're wearing it. Like, you probably know almost everything you need to know about your world. Like, it's all tied up in there somehow. Like, their trade systems and where stuff is coming from and their level of technology and industrialization and what the, like climate looks like where they are can they grow the stuff that they're wearing or are they having to import Mm -hmm. it and what do they think about gender and how do they perform gender and how do they express personality or class or different of social strata through their clothing you know all this stuff it's like if you if you know this you probably know a heck of a lot about the world that your characters are inhabiting
2: absolutely and and I think we don't realize how much time was involved in the production of materials. Even now, even things like we have computerized jacquard looms, but even as fast as they can go, they can't really go that fast. It's still weaving of material, no matter if a robot is doing it or a program or a person, takes a huge amount of time and labor. Someone is always doing the labor and someone is always benefiting from that labor and it's almost never the people who are actually creating it. And that's a, th- a thing, a thread, if you will, that I think really goes through a lot of, uh, should go through people that, when they're thinking about how their worlds are. Um, we say things like silk all the time. Well, where did that silk come from? Silk is from the cocoons of certain, you know, bugs that grow on mulberry trees. Do you, I mean, of course, it's secondary world. If you want to, you can make up whatever it is, but there are commodities and there are, you know, just incredible things behind the scenes that we just don't, uh, we don't think about that can add so much to your world if you take a minute and think about it.
3: I think too, not just the creation, but the maintenance of clothing is also something to think about that, that touches on so many things. It touches on technology, it touches on time, it touches on who does certain kinds of labor. I was marveling just the other day over the wonder that is the washing machine. And how much (laughs) labor that saves us, because prior to that, Mm -hmm. laundry was a huge endeavor and guilds and businesses sprang up around it and and having a washer person, Mm -hmm. washer woman usually, but um, or having the the laundry guild and and things like that. It's it's so fascinating that this thing that we take for granted clothing, it's like we get up, we put on clothing, touches so many things and requires so much Mm -hmm thought and so much of of a society of being in a society is the ability to create Mm -hmm. and maintain clothing that is easy to wear for us these days yeah yeah
0: and all the skills that are wrapped up in that too right like you talk about maintenance and laundry like I mean have you ever seen someone do laundry in a historical setting it's bonkers like the work that has to go into this and the skill and the know-how physical labor like hard physical labor and also knowing how to do it like it, even and you take it from like boiling this crap and beating the crap out of like white linens to get them to be stain free and then like the right chemicals to put into the water mm-hmm. for like bluing and stuff and then you take the stuff and like iron it with irons that you have to heat like exactly precisely yep. because they aren't set by anything and then you're like super fine fabrics like so mm-hmm. easy to scorch it and these little tiny like little teeny like pleats that you're ironing and it's like it's bonkers the amount of yeah, skill that's... that goes into something as basic as what we take for granted is throw something in the laundry, take it out, <laughs> yeah. throw it in the dryer, take it out. And that's,
2: I think that reminds me of one of my favorite things about so much cloth is that I, you know, I spend a lot of times in, in the, in uh, the, in the Met archive and the VNA, like looking at all these dresses and very often you'll find that there are dresses made of fabrics that are 200 years older or two decades older than the dress. Or you'll find a dress that they can tell by looking at the sort of costume forensics that it has been reparted and re-pieced because the fabric was so valuable. You see that a lot with Spittlefield silk. If you Google that, it's it's just a thing for your eyes. It's amazing. Uh, and Anna Maria Garthwaite was the designer who kind of pioneered these, these shapes and these, you know, this very, uh, the S-curves of that period. And it was worth so much. I mean, that's one of the reasons that hope chests existed too, right? Women would often come with a dowry of material of silks and velvets, and that would be brought to the house of of their future husband because they could last generations. Which also reminds me of the of the uh, survivalship bias as well. We always say, "Oh, these dresses are all so small," but a lot of times, the dresses that remain are small because they couldn't be reused there wasn't enough material to reshape it but dresses that fit an average person were used and worn a lot and handed down from person to person and, and reshaped over time yeah,
0: And when you remake something you're eventually going to start taking fabric out of it in order to make it into a more fashionable shape for you know this decade. There's a fabulous fully embroidered gown and I think it's in the Boston Museum. It was originally done in the 18th century and it was the latest iteration of it is like 1820s, 1830s, I believe. And like I, it, makes, it gives me a sad because I'm like, I really want to know what it right. looks like <laughs> when it was first made in like 1750 or something. But yeah, it's amazing because they clearly very carefully reshaped this thing probably two or three times for different women to wear it. And mm-hmm. because you have a fully embroidered, I mean, it is fully embroidered. I can't even imagine how many Hundreds so, and hundreds so much time. of hours went into embroidering this thing. And it's, you know, but you, you do it once, you're going to keep using that fabric mm-hmm. over and over and over again. I think we all enjoy <laughs> thinking about fabric and textiles and clothing in our work. How much of it actually, like, shows up on the page for you all? I can say, for me, in my first books, obviously, it showed up a lot. That was kind of the point. But... <laughs> I think that might be an exception the extent to which it showed up
2: I don't know I I've always been really drawn toward fashion and because I write a lot of historical or at least historically flavored alternate history kind of work that it's always kind of come with the the territory and my first novel that came out a little more than 10 almost 10 years ago one of the main characters uh one's a haberdasher and one's a a designer um a modiste and that's you know another really interesting thing that folks don't realize as well is that for for centuries really until the late 19th century women were the designers and they were the 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 modists and it was till charles frederick worth came around and and flipped that on its head because it was improper for men to be touching women Um, so most of the designs that we see it is the heritage of women it is and we think of fashion now of course as like a male-dominated industry, right? Many of the biggest names in fashion are men. That's a very, very modern uh, approach to it. But I think it's, to me, I can't escape it. Sometimes I go a little bit further than I should or or, or because I find it so fascinating, I want to create certain silks or cottons that are different, that have, you know, something neat in them that I can imbue uh, my world with that is based somewhat on, on the real world. But those visuals, to me, paint a character so much and if I'm writing something specifically historical I really do that research I spend tons of time in Pinterest and kind of build their wardrobes because it does speak to who they are and how you attain those materials and who's making them for you and how often you're changing your dress right if you can afford to change your dress three times a day the wealth of that is beyond what we can imagine now I mean it really the, the the inflation didn't work right when it came to that. Once we were able to industrialize materials, it's now just come to a point where you're just paying for someone's logo. Like the quality can only go so far. You're just you're just at this point like this is real Gucci. You know this is so. I, I spent you know seven thousand dollars on it when there's a bag that's pretty much exactly like it that's just not Gucci. Um,
1: <laughs> I, I'm reminded of a friend of a friend who wears nothing but top designer t-shirts and jeans but it's like it that's still just a white t-shirt and <laughs> and quality and content wise it's not anything different but yet it's got the name and therefore you spent over a thousand on it for reasons and which is part of like the whole power play sort of thing we're talking about. like I know for me and I bet for a number of our listeners, there is a desire to include more things about fashion and clothes. But just we don't have the base of research and knowledge or even the vocabulary to be able to express it to the degree, to the levels with which we want to, to be able to, to have our worlds be as strong fashion wise as we want. Like I tried, I try a lot, but I, I don't, I know I don't have, I don't have the, the knowledge base Or rather than play with the actual like fabrics or clothing types I like to play with the effects it has and how how it can be a political thing how it can be used for four different things and what different outfits mean in terms of the power it shows
0: it's okay Marshall you have
3: all the food too (laughs) I was about to say the thing I I say about myself when it comes to clothes is that I feel like I treat fashion (laughs) in my books the way that your standard fantasy writer treats food because I'm not very mm-hmm. interested in food, and I'm super interested in fashion and what people are wearing. And the oven cycle, it's it's funny because it's it's classical era. And so you think, oh, well, they're just all wearing bedsheets, right? How, how much fashion is there in that? And it's like, there is a ton of fashion in that. What kinds of togas you wore so and when you wore them and who was allowed to wear them. There's all these strata of just fascinating information. One of my favorite scenes in From Unseen Fire is um sempronius Terran putting on the toga candida the chalked so this is 12 yards of wool that have been chalked white <laughs> that's a mess but the chalked toga you wore to indicate that you were standing for office and um mm-hmm. fun fact trivia for our listeners that is where the word candidate for office comes from is the toga candida which is the bright candida means bright the bright white toga So there's I I love those things. And then the project I'm working on now is um, its second world, but it's very heavily influenced by early modern London. And so it's Elizabethan to early Stuart fashion inspiration. Which I'm just oh god, so I'm cool. just loving it. I'm gonna have to take some of these descriptions one of out. of my f- absolute yeah. favorite period. I'm gonna have yeah. to cut some of these descriptions <laughs> out because there's too many of them. But like so, so many m- pins,
2: so many lace ruffs, and
3: like the, the, where the thing laces—is is it a front lace or a side lace or a back lace—that says something about the person wearing it and their social status and and the speed with which they can get dressed. It's so it's so much fun. I just I just eat it up. I adore it. And that's one that like I. Those are clothes I know what it's like to wear because I've worked at rent fair, I've worked at Elizabethan theaters. And, and that gets into so many character things too. Like how you move is different based on the clothing you're wearing. And I it like is. communicating yeah, right. that in how characters move and negotiate space around each other like in a room. It's, it's, it adds a fun dimension to thinking of the scene in a physical motion kind of way.
2: Yeah, I lo- I loved the memes that, especially the middle of pandemic times. I guess when we talked about wearing panniers <laughs> and how that would be just so great because it everyone would keep everyone at a, at a distance. And for those who don't know, no, panniers are what was the structure underneath those amazing rococo dresses that gave that huge. I guess it's basically like a hanger to put your your fabric on. At that point, it was just in the face of whoever wanted that you could afford to wear that much useless space right there you could you could probably take three or four couches and upholster them with what one (laughs) dress was but it was also super heavy uh even no matter how many things you wore underneath you even though they're fairly simple gowns that kind of wrap over and then you've got your stomach or they still silk that much silk is heavy especially when it's figured silk it's brocaded
0: trim on it too i can say having i've never worn panniers in like a public normal store I I have worn a very large false rump and people will keep distance from you even without the extra side hustle happening there they're like that's keeping distance from that that's how nature says do not touch right there
2: And some of them were still reinforced. I mean, it's amazing to see what happened at the end of the 19th century when spring steals and, you know, you can
0: do all kinds it, of fun uh, stuff with that. So,
2: <laughs> I love looking at the architecture of bustles and corsets because it really is just a fascinating it's math, you know, it's like yeah. physics. They're figuring out how to be able to do this and it was much more comfortable in some ways. But then I'm always thinking, wow, they folded down. What if you pinch your butt? Like I'm if sure you have anything did. back there, I'm sure Yeah, you have to <laughs> make chairs work around you too.
0: I feel like, too, fantasy is such a rich place for playing with clothing because we have we can have these historical inspirations and we can do the deep dives. It's like, okay, so how at this technology level with these materials available, how do we make this possible? How do we make it work? But then we can also like screw around with it and just like have fun with what can get combined and what might people like play with and how would they play with it and I feel like fantasy just it sets itself up for such fun like cosplay stuff and just fun inspiration like I'm really enjoying seeing the stills for the new Lord of the Rings series coming out because there's some really fun stuff in there I'm super excited about the fact that there's um armor for galadriel
3: that doesn't have mm-hmm. the boobs on it that cosplay is it's like, calling my is name innovation <laughs> like, <laughs> just i need it finally <laughs> i mean you are have the, the hair the whole... i do. do i just need you the do. armor yeah
0: like are there any favorites that you all have from from fantasy works that are just like that that's inspiration right there that's goals
3: um sean and Maguire's toby day series the fairies have what's called spider silk which I think is just, if I could magic a fabric into existence, because it is just magic fabric. It is, it's, it's a magic kind of silk that basically self-laces, self-adjusts. You just touch it, and it goes, whoop, right to where it's supposed to be. It's like, oh, that's so easy. <laughs> but it also makes, like, improbable constructions possible, because the fabric just magically does what you need it to do. It matches your vision of what this gown is supposed to look like, because they're fairies, and they can get away with that. <laughs> that's amazing.
2: I do love magical clothes, but I also love um, like magical worlds where clothes are just Done really beautifully, and especially when it takes it out of a strictly sort of, uh, you know, Western European context. And um, I, I thankfully read the Shadow and Bone series from Lee Bardugo before the show came out, but it's been so fun. I'm rewatching the show with my best friend right now, and just like really honing in on the embroidery and the costumes, and taking the kaftan slash kefta of you know, it goes all the, really. It's it's an ancient ancient garment, and turning it into this wizard robe basically right so you know anyone who is Grisha has their own color-coded uh you know embroidery and background and there's velvets and there's just this incredible level of detail and they really went to town in the series for that and I haven't seen something quite that well orchestrated I mean certainly you have like the Harry Potter colors but let's face it it's it's basically just stealing from (laughs) from football right it's not (laughs) we're, we're not like in a whole new world here but I love but they did that, and they also took. It looks like some pretty, you know, looking at historical combinations and how those embroidery uh, pieces were made, and and and. Making the characters really kind of embrace that, and it's so cool to see that translation onto the screen. We've all had a lot of the beautiful Regency stories and the Victorian gorgeousness of you know wonderful st- stuff. I think Gail Carriger doesn't get any better in terms of of descriptions of Victorian costume um, in in her books. I adore this her series for for that reason. But I love again just seeing something that falls outside of that. I think uh, The Witcher did a good job. Uh, this last season of, of sort of in, bringing in other, like, non-Western f- forms and shapes. You saw a lot of things that were sort of Persian-influenced or Japanese-influenced. Um, certainly the Wheel of Time series did the same thing, where they're not just taking shapes that look like a knight and a wizard and a paladin. And it's our D&D group, and that's great, and I love it. But I also love when you're bringing in other places, because it really shows that you have a, everyone has a place in fantasy, which is something I talk a lot about. We're just so affixed to this one mindset that we often lose how beautiful and how otherworldly it can feel by combining these all together right?
1: Though that creates one one of the challenges I know I have where you're trying to show say another culture and you don't necessarily want to use the exact like terms from other parts of the world in your secondary world because then it's like oh you're just directly importing From this part of the world, because you you, like you wouldn't want to use the word kimono, because that automatically is like, oh, so it's just Japan. Correct. That's not what you want to do. But you also want to express something that puts that visualization exactly into your reader's brain without using that exact word that immediately ties itself to another culture.
3: But at the same time, just saying robe is sort of too generic. Exactly. That, that doesn't give you enough detail.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, technically, a kimono is part of the caftan family, so you can always <laughs> get away with caftan, which I've determined is really such an international shape that you know you can get away with it. But I think the boxiness, I think what's so beautiful about Japanese fashion is the angularness, right? This crisp lines and folds and, and, and just the geometry of it. And that's kind of what I lean to if I'm trying to get that that aspect out because it's it is it does stand apart you also see that in certain patterns Um, but I also want to do the work and I never want to bring something in that's appropriating or exoticizing um, the work because as beautiful as it can be when you combine these things in many cases, there are things that are sacred or important. Um, I learned a whole lot about, you know, white kimonos and the meaning behind that and and funeral rites. And we don't think about that stuff. So I want to make sure, again, like I said at the beginning, there's a whole many hours that go in before I bring something to the forefront. Because I want to ensure that I'm at least doing as much of the work I can. I'm going to mess up. I think as writers, we all know that there's <laughs> like, there's no way we can be 100%. But relying on that visual, I think, uh, will clue people into the right things if, without having to say it.
3: I love that you bring geometry into it, because I hadn't thought of it in quite that way. But silhouette is so much of what makes a, a fashion style and an era. And if you can get dig down into the geometry of it, that might help give the reader the right visual clues without using inappropriate or appropriative terms. Correct. I'm running through fashion plates in my head being like, what would I call that? Is that a rhombus? Is that what is that? <laughs> yeah. Is this cerulean? Is that a rhombus?
4: Yeah.
1: (laughs) Well, and that can tie then into how easily, you, especially if you're doing secondary world work, and trying to show, say, how fashion changes over time. How, you know, one color comes up and goes down, or one, one shape goes up and goes down. I mean, to go to that speech from Devil Wears Prada about cerulean that we stole the episode title from...
4: Okay, I see, you think this has nothing to do with you. You go to your closet and you select, I don't know, that lumpy blue sweater, for instance, because you're trying to tell the world that you take yourself too seriously to care about what you put on your back, but what you don't know is that that sweater is not just blue, it's not turquoise, it's not lapis, it's actually cerulean. And you're also blithely unaware of the fact that In 2002, Oscar de la Renta did a collection of Cerulean gowns. And then I think it was Yves Saint Laurent, wasn't it, who showed Cerulean military jackets? I think we need a jacket here. Mm. And then Cerulean quickly showed up in the collections of eight different designers. And then it uh, filtered down through the department stores and then trickled on down into some tragic casual corner where you no doubt fished it out of some clearance bin. However, that blue represents millions of dollars and countless jobs. And it's sort of comical how you think that you've made a choice that exempts you from the fashion industry when in fact you're wearing a sweater that was selected for you by the people in this room.
1: So then the question I ask myself is can your world support a speech like this existing? Does that infrastructure, does that level of power exists within your world. That That's another thing I always want to play with and don't necessarily have the, I don't quite yet have the skill set to do it of that fashion was different 10 years ago, 15 years ago. And like say, I try and use language like, you know, just wearing a coat that's 10 years old or 15 years out of fashion or something like that without getting too deep into the details of it. But that sense that some people are just going to be wearing the old clothes because they can't afford to get the new ones or that's just not what you're able to do and so you're still going to wear that old coat because it's still a perfectly good coat even if it's not stylish anymore
0: or maybe you just don't care
1: Or you don't care. (laughs)
0: Because, I mean, it's interesting that you see, I mean, historically, even very impoverished people are trying to keep up with fashion to some degree. They're reworking their clothing. They're remaking it. They're, you know, picking up. I mean, accessories often change very quickly, whereas the bones of the fabric and kind of stay the same. And so it is kind of fun to play with. Okay, so what can you do if you have a lot of money? And what can you do if you don't have a lot of money? And how do you play with that? You know, you can't get a whole new gown made in the latest color du jour, but the ribbons that you've got on your cap are going to be the color du jour because you can afford that, darn it.
2: So that that reminds me of the chintz story because chintz was such a reverse, a weird story in terms of its popularity because it was really the mostly women who were working the, the, the actual, you know, uh, Making the, the garments themselves—actually, not garments—it was furniture fabric, and they would get these cast-offs of furniture fabric that was chintz, and they would make little little parts of their outfits, right? Because it was so beautiful. It was these gorgeous, gorgeous block prints from you know in, taken from India and uh, in the surrounds. And but rich women saw it and were like, "No, we're going to pass laws that mean that you can't wear it, and we're going to start wearing it." <laughs> so it becomes it becomes this, you know. It's, it's interesting because there is that line between this is a fashion statement, it's a silhouette, it's geometry, it's a new pattern versus this is just beautiful, right? This is just something beautiful. And then there were like, there were all kinds of backlashes against wearing chintz, that it was pagan, that it was garish. Um, dresses used to get uh, thrown uh, ink all over them and and uh, acid and all kinds of stuff. I mean, it's, it is Cuckoo, what people went to the level to wear this floral pattern. Like like you're saying, it was it started off small, but the beauty of it is what changed fashion versus what was so often the case, which was rich people using it as a tool of oppression, <laughs> because you could easily sort the haves and have-nots, uh, the oppressors from those who were being oppressed by making something out of fashion by deciding the hat is now tilted this way and it is folded this way. And the only way you can do that is to get a new hat and go to the hatter and have it pressed and made for you. Exactly.
0: I think that to kind of veer us into the meat and potatoes of what I think we want to talk about was sort of to thinking about fashion and power and fashion and politics and fashion and all of these things. And I mean, we're in the most basic ways that fashion can reflect power is those elements of what can you afford and what can you not afford and I mean there are all kinds of like plays on that um and it's not just the keeping up with the latest fashion it's also what fabrics are available to you what can you you know what can you purchase and what can you maintain like you've Mm -hmm. got you know these Beautiful white muslin gowns from, you know, the early, early 19th century, end of the 18th century, early 19th century. And it's like, okay, most people can't maintain the beautiful, pure white gown. That is going to be a special occasion gown for people who can afford it, not for, you know, work a day, whatever.
1: And
3: then you get into the places where what you can afford and what you're allowed to wear are perhaps not the same thing. Um, mm. Go back to the Tudor and Stuart eras, the idea of sumptuary laws and this is not the only place or time that's ever had sumptuary laws, it's just the one I happen to know the most about regimented what you were allowed to wear and sometimes how much of something you were allowed to wear based on your class and you know the, the wife of a knight was different from the daughter of a knight, it got that granular sometimes in what you were allowed to wear how much, how much of this color, how much gold thread, how much silver thread and that was imposed by law That was not simply, can you afford this kind of thread? It was the fear of people, sort of like you were saying before, the fear of the wealthy and the aristocrats seeing the the nouveau riche suddenly with access to more things than they'd had before, saying, oh, no, 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 we still need people to be able to look, and you need to be able to tell the difference between a countess and the daughter of a knight and just some shopkeeper's daughter at a glance. We can't have people confusing the shopkeeper's daughter for the countess. That would be... Absolute mass hysteria. Chaos. Chaos. Yes. Mass hysteria. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and to the point that even when I think a lot of these
0: laws had passed on to some degree, you have people from continental Europe shocked coming to America. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a diary of a, a Hessian soldier who notes this. He's like, everyone dresses the same. everyone that I see in Philadelphia is like so fashionable the the women are all their hair's all dressed and they're all wearing you know fine cotton gowns and and he's just he's shocked because this is not what he's used to seeing he's used to seeing social stratification displayed in how people are dressing and he's just kind of like I don't know how to deal with this right now between Mm -hmm. that and the giant man-eating lobsters that I've been told are in the harbor I don't know how to (laughs) deal with any of this stuff
3: Well,
2: that's interesting too, because if you go into the rural communities, it's kind of, it is homogenous, but it is also super simple, right? The, the communities there were just wearing whatever they could do because they didn't have trade routes. They didn't have ways that they could get, you know, the newest fashions. And so they were, uh, dressing in, in sort of an old style. There's one of my favorite, um, my family's from, uh, Quebec, uh, originally and, and, uh, well not originally, but my mom is from there. <laughs> um, so I grew up, you know, just learning a lot about, uh, the culture, uh, especially in Arcadia, of like the many cultures that came through. And there's a wonderful little pamphlet on, uh, Amazon of a, of an English, priest that comes to uh what is now part of nova scotia um and basically just says like they're they all look like they're from another time because they they kind of were they were isolated and so their clothes just did not evolve with what he was used to seeing on the continent and so you have these little micro groups of people just like we have with language right um where they're just wearing what is practical, what they know, there might be small evolutions and, and influences from native cultures and, and what they could get, right? But they were wearing also tons of fur, which for someone coming from another place was like, how? But they're like, we've hunted all the white foxes, that's why. <laughs> there's, there's none left, but we sure are warm. Um, <laughs> And, well, and, and that's, and it's, you know,
0: it's funny, too, because it kind of depends on the location, because like on the total opposite end of the spectrum, but still Francophone North America, you have um, like the Midwestern colonies in like Vincennes and Kaskaskia. And we've got records that they're importing like silk gowns and silk slippers mm-hmm. to go with their silk gowns. And you're like, what are you what are you doing with this stuff? It's like <laughs> literally the middle of nowhere. But it was very important to them to show mm-hmm. off the wealth that they had built. By being basically the breadbasket of both New Orleans and Quebec at this point, mm-hmm. by importing clothes. We're gonna wear really yep. nice clothes in our backwater, backwoods community that we've built. Yeah. That's a choice. That they made. I'm and in the
1: tiny I'm town in the so. middle of nowhere, but I'm the richest person in the tiny town in the middle of nowhere. And you're yes. going to know.
0: <laughs> and I'm going to wear a bright pink silk gown with matching silk slippers. Damn it. Because <laughs> I
3: can. I think it's fun, too, to, to something you both hit on is the ability of clothing to communicate a difference in cultures and, and sometimes cultural competition and rivalries. And I think that's something, that's a place Mm -hmm. we can weave it into fiction in a really, ah, weave, I didn't even mean to do that, (laughs) in a fun way, is I'm thinking about the the ancient example I know of, which is one of my favorite tidbits about um, Sparta back in the day, back in, you know, 500 BC or whatever. The Athenians looked down their noses at Sparta for a lot of reasons because there's a whole, you know, there's wars and they're rivals. But when the women got involved, it wasn't necessarily about you know your militaristic culture versus your cerebral culture or whatever. The Athenian women got really snotty about the Spartan women, and one of the main insults they went to was calling them thigh showers, <laughs> because Spartan women wore shorter chitons, and at least at certain points in time, it actually wasn't fastened on the side like at all. It was just open, and they built it so it sort of held together, but there was no fastening on one entire side of the body. And so yeah, there'd be a lot showing. And that was the insult the Athenian women went to, to talk about how depraved and immoral the Spartan women were, the thigh showers because of their clothing choices. The Spartan women are probably like, um, it's hot here room. and we are more active than you. So yeah, of course we're wearing these short skirts. Yeah, look you know what? Look at my awesome thighs. <laughs>
2: And that, that reminds me so much of the Celts and Romans, kind of. You know, we obviously have more Roman interpretations, but they were like they're wearing these things that look like paint Like they didn't know they were pants, right? <laughs> they're, like, they're, wearing, they're wearing things on their going legs going around all bifurcated. The like they're naked. They're they're yeah they're they're naked. They're, <laughs> these men are oily and hairless, <laughs> and they're not wearing anything past their upper thigh. Uh, this is weird, and it really uh it's such an interesting again, like it was cultures that were so separated for so long. Um, and, and just a, an absolute misunderstanding. And then the other thing I've been thinking a lot about, cause this always comes up, which is the, the, you know, the Viking cultures and you know, the Danes and the Swedes and, and, and dreadlocks, right. You all, there's always this whole thing of like, oh, well, dreadlocks are fine for white people because Scandinavians have been wearing dreads forever. there's no indication other than it looks cool on TV Um, But they actually were incredibly fastidious had long beards. There are so many combs in the archaeological record whenever you find an area where, you know, these Viking tribes were, were working and living. Um, but also they, many of them shaved their heads. They may have braided their hair much more like dwarves, right? That we kind of think of, <laughs> of in those terms, like putting things in your hair. But this idea of, of real dreadlocks as a somehow heritage thing, it, that's fantasy. That's because it looks cool. Like it does, like it just does. But we we just it's it's hard to know exactly what these people do, and people don't want to hear like, oh, he had no ha- hair on his head and a long beard. That doesn't feel as cool. So we sadly make up our own Which fictions, is a shame right?
3: Because to get to get you know back to the cultural rivalry thing, um, there's a source I can't remember his name, but he's from the the Saxon period of England, and he's complaining about how the Danes are just too hot and they're stealing <laughs> yes. all the English women. <laughs> too hot. <laughs> Because, because they, they bathe, bathe every Saturday I and just they wear was perfume they and every they pay Saturday, very careful attention to, to how they present themselves and it's like uh
2: they to their yeah. teeth they it's clean like, their uh, teeth English yeah. women gotta
3: be going like uh yeah guys get it together come on basic yeah. hygiene <laughs> come on
2: yeah I was gonna say the, the scars guards are still living that, <laughs> Is that dream truth? I feel like
3: <laughs> absolutely <laughs> true story <laughs> <laughs> I think I was gonna say something else intelligent and then you said scars guards and, <laughs> and I lost it. Don't know where
1: it they went. They have that power.
2: they have that, ha- they have that habit.
3: <sighs> so
0: I feel like I feel like we've explored the um kind of not necessarily obvious messaging ways that people use fashion right like these are things that are part of the fashion but you aren't necessarily putting it on to make a specific statement but fashion can absolutely be like a political statement as well right like you can have statements being made that are not sideways that are not like oh I'm wearing purple silk because I have a lot of money <laughs> but are like I'm wearing purple silk because I'm a suffragette and I'm combining it with green for that reason too you know like see so you have those elements too have any of you like played with any of that in, in your writing or
2: I haven't played with it in my writing as much as yet other than you know I I love what I'm writing right now is sort of I call it like baroque fantasy secondary world so it's very it's it's a gender swap three musketeers with magic swords right so it's it's that kind of thing but playing playing with who gets to wear pants right who gets who gets to wear you know breeches or whatever the equivalent is um it's a big thing, and I and and women, including Joan of Arc, have lost their lives uh, for wearing. I mean, that's really essentially what she got. Uh, she got burned for was for for wearing men's clothing men's clothing right men wore dresses and robes for a very very long time it's just whatever is appropriate or whatever is going to be helpful at the time um but i do love the symbolism of of different clothing and how different characters accessorize so my my three main uh swashbucklers you know they each have the sort of basic you know military issue outfit, but each of them has their own ways of either not giving a crap because one of them is just like drunk most of the time. And is like, I'm just going to be sad and, and ratty to the other side of the, the sort of total fop who has added bows and lace and kind of trimmed it up in, in that kind of thing. But I do think that the political part of that is, is really important. I think it is harder to, to show the gravity of in fiction because we don't quite have the cultural uh, standpoints. I think for me, I'm particularly interested in the queer symbolism of fashion. There's an incredible blog that I adore to pieces called dressingdykes.com, and it really is the history of. Uh, you know, lesbian history of fashion and who wore what when. And you said purple gown, but the color purple has had implications of queerness for a long, long time. Uh, it goes back as far as Sappho, who talked about violet as being one of the the flowers that were that were plucked for the beloved. Um, and then concepts of like having a streak of lavender, uh, which was kind of you know a term for someone who was probably an effeminate male or perhaps bisexual. They use that to describe Abraham Lincoln and some of the letters about him. And then wearing sprigs of lavender or wearing lavender pocket sheaves to kind of symbolize to people in an area that you were, you know, you, you, you were up for it. Um, Oscar Wilde was known for, for talking about purpling things as well. So it's amazing how a color can, can mean so much for, for so many people. So I think that's probably why I proceed with caution because I want to make sure It makes sense but it's also uh powerful in the story itself
1: but i do love that idea of having either some sort of overt or secret code that what you're wearing indicates something about you that those who know will know whether it be you know your specific political bent or your sexual preferences or you know what what you're looking for that evening based on you know what you have on your wrist or or something like that like that's those are fun things to play with but yeah, part of the challenge is both teaching your readers why that's significant without just it being an info dump of here. I'm telling you why that's significant. But that, that, that can be just a fun thing to play with.
3: I, I love it personally because I think there are so many great ways to make a scene out of teaching them that information. And my best example is not from fantasy, it's from Shakespeare uh, the Temple Garden scene in 1 Henry 6 which is where they all pluck their white and red roses to choose if they're gonna be with the Yorks or the Lancasters. And it's a scene about that, but it's also a scene about how much all these people hate each other <laughs> and <laughs> how they are snarking at each other and how they are dissing each other as they are choosing their colors. And I, I'm not sure I've seen fiction do something that, ex- like fantasy fiction rather, something that explicit with like setting up that scene mm-hmm. where we actively choose in the moment, right now, Pick your side based on which of these colors you're going to wear. But I'd love, I would love to see it. And I did see recently, and I just actually, I leaned over and picked up because it's still right by my desk. That's how recently I finished it. Glamour and Glass, the second of the um, the Glamourist mm-hmm. series. And, and has a moment where the heroine realizes she should have realized somebody was a spy because they were wearing the wrong cockade. Because it's in this area of France yep. that had just flipped back to the, the royalist's after the Bonapartists, but the guy was wearing a red, white, and blue cockade, not a pure white one. And later she was like, how did I miss that? How did I not notice that he was wearing the wrong cockade? And it's like, that's such a great moment of like the fashion influencing the plot because she missed a (laughs) cue. And it's just great. It's so, it's so subtle too, because it is in there. Like in the scene where she first sees him wearing it, the cockade is mentioned and it just sort of gets glossed past. But as a reader, I was going, Is that right for that, for that year? Is that correct? Is that, should that be? (laughs) Hmm. And I was like, all right, well, it must be. And then like 60 pages later, it comes back. And I was like, I knew it. (laughs) I knew that cockade was, I knew that cockade was mentioned for a reason. I think you can play with things like that with your readers.
2: Yeah. And I think that's something I'm always thinking of. If I'm going to introduce something cool whether it's, because I, I, I'm with you, Marshall, I also love describing food, especially, I joke that one of the main reasons I write fantasy is so I can make up cheeses, um, because I just love the idea of creating my own, like charcuterie and cheese board that has cheeses that I've created. Um, but I also try to make sure very much in the same way that if I'm, if I'm going out of my way to say, this is this kind of silk, or this is this kind of velvet, it's gotta have some bigger meaning actually last night was writing about a kind of velvet that I created that it basically wanted to be like void velvet so it's perfect for someone who is a A spy because velvet literally you know sops up color um it takes away you know the refraction so you do hide perfectly and if you're well enough to do like this particular assassin slash sword swashbuckler um it's a perfect kind of thing to be able to have um and that made sense versus me just having like a catalog of yes i could totally come up with you know 300 different kinds of fabrics and patterns but I I feel like it needed to matter to the reader because it's a lesson in fashion as well
0: it's funny too because I feel like there are there are points in history and moments of fashion that are like these are obvious signals right like you have the cockade and it's like this is yes that is what that is and I fell in the rabbit hole recently of suffragette jewelry because purple and green were the colors the suffragettes eventually picked up to kind of represent their Mm -hmm. their platform and there's a lot of purple and green jewelry from the time period but the question is was that actually jewelry that was made for that purpose that women were buying or is it because these two these stones amethyst peridot they actually picked up in popularity in terms of their mining at that time and they look good together So Mm -hmm, you find this jewelry like in antique stores and you'll find dealers saying this is a suffragette jewelry to kind of like get this cachet of additional like value to it. But the question is, is this ever and there isn't a whole lot of evidence that anyone was ever producing jewelry or purchasing jewelry for that purpose. And so I I had a character in, in the book that I'm working on now, like because it's set in the early 20th century that she's wearing purple and green and it's on purpose. But it's like, is was that ever actually a thing we don't actually know? I decided to lean into it, but a lot of things yeah, are actually kind of murky. Like do we I don't actually know if people were doing something for a particular reason or if it was because mm-hmm. it was, you know convenient to do or fashionable otherwise to do you get a whole lot of stuff about how the fashion changing around the french revolution is because of the french revolution but it was already kind of changing like the wastelands were already going up and it was already simplifying all
2: the all the credit it's a lot you know
0: it's kind of what what is it really it's kind of muddy because at the end of the day most fashion and clothing does not come down to one singular influence on it like we influenced by all kinds of different things bombarding us except for like the choice mm-hmm. to put on a, I like Ike pin or something that obvious, you know, it's, there's a lot of other stuff happening. A lot of the time.
2: It makes me think I, I love Regency fashion and, and long Regency fashion, I guess, speaking of murkiness, right. How, how you, how you measure <laughs> any fashion terms. period. But it's, what what is amazing to me is how, like you'd mentioned before cast the, the muslin, right? Like this, like something that seems so innocuous, when is actually a horrific story of colonization, appropriation, of the of the level that you would never think from watching a Pride and Prejudice film where everything is through a gauzy lens, literally, right? And it looks so innocent, and it's the same thing with Pashminas. Pashmina's got wonderfully popular. and I, I think I forget which I think I was watching, I can not think it was Mansfield Park or something like that. And one of the you know the actresses could be put actresses in these muslin dresses and these beautiful Pashminas which were stolen from shawls and these were incredibly meaningful symbolic shawls that had thousands of hours of work in them and had meaning that we can't even wrap our head around and they were just brought back of spo- spoils of war from soldiers to, to their wives or their honeys and You can watch any frame of any regency film and see both of these things and just go oh how quaint and sweet without that context i had no idea that my muslin thread talk was the one that really exploded and it was literally just me and i was depressed for days after learning about it because i just was like they make such a big deal of muslin in every jane austen novel like i kind of know what it is but but what is the story behind it and then falling into that and learning about the, the, the sort of cavalcade of stuff that happens when an entire culture is uprooted and then turned into this industrial culture. And then they decided, Hey, let's actually make this stuff at home. And then you have a whole culture that has lost their own ability to create agriculture. And then that was perfect ground for creating the opium wars and to have, you know, this underground, I can go on forever about the East India Company and how, <laughs> how it's really, it's we're still experiencing the effects of it today. But you never think of, you know, Kitty Bennett wearing this little pashmina as being anything other than adorable and quaint, but it is sinister. And that stuff is just, I mean, it's its horror. It's like, it is like discovering a horror novel uh, in the middle of something beautiful. And that, I think, is what I, I talk a lot about, is that beauty comes at a cost. Beauty really, really comes at a cost. And there's always going to be some being appropriated. Well,
0: and so. we started out talking about just the immense amount of labor and money and, you know, that goes into production of textiles historically, um, just because of the nature of producing textiles historically. But, you know, you you come with something even as, as simple as, you know, white cotton. And by the early 19th century, that is entirely wrapped up in exporting that out of, slaveholding American mm-hmm. South and shipping it over to textile mills in England that are not nice to their workers that are highly exploitative. So you have like exploitation on both ends to produce something that's yeah. like the backbone of the fashion of the time.
2: And then within 50 years, the industrialization took those livelihoods away. And you have the sort of another cascading factor, right? You, you end up having people who don't have even though they were horrible jobs that's all that they knew how to do and now they have no protections because of course this is really the the labor movement grew out of the textile mills and 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 those uh, the people that were fighting to have better better areas and, and better better ways of life who were going th- there were laws like oh, you're not supposed to be under 11 but who's going <laughs> to check a poor kids pet? they didn't have passports or IDs you know you just you need you need small people to To work these machines, even in the age of super industrialization, and then people just dying from getting cotton in their lungs and turning into t- tumors. Again, it's like it's like you said. It, it, there's one end of oppression that goes to another. Someone is always at the top with the best of the goods, right? Uh, we have the Kardashians. You know, they're the ones that it doesn't. People give them whatever they want because it's it's visible. You can dress like them, but it's never going to be the same. Someone is always you know, we still need small people to run machines. They're not in the US, but sweatshops are everywhere. And now they've learned how to, you know, basically break up sweatshops so that they can't trace them. These huge multi-international companies that we all we all have to be part of the system, right? I mean, I'm wearing a shirt from Target. It's the clearance bin, but it doesn't matter. It was some it's tie-dye. Someone had to make the tie-dye. Like that's not something that you can easily do without that so yeah it's there's a lot on i think conscious consciousnesses, and yeah,
0: yeah i think the textiles are that thing that historically in fantasy worlds and today it kind of ties into this we can look at a system and say this is oppressive this is horrible this is awful i condemn this how could anyone be part of this system and yet everyone is Mm-hmm. Because unless you are like literally going to start raising your own sheep and doing homespun yourself, you are part of the system. There's no real way to get around it. And it's one of those things that it's, you know, almost kind of like worries me a little bit when people get very, very invested in condemning the, you know, mm-hmm. horrors of the past. Like, oh, you know, and it, they are, they're horrific and horrible. We look You know, America's absolute, you know, humiliation and shame of where we came from with slavery. Like this is part of our history. This is is terrible. But when you see people like divorcing it from that was the past and it was bad and they were bad without being like, and yet systems of oppression continue today. And just like people then participated because how do you not participate and you either benefit or get crapped on and that is how it works you also are participating in a system that you are either benefiting from or getting crapped on or maybe some of both because
1: capitalism that's
0: where we live (laughs) a lot of both you know yeah and i think that when you can like recognize that about the, the real world that it's this weird nasty mess of you're part of the system whether you want to be or not and yes that means you're going to benefit from some things and you're contributing to it by being a part of it. Like when we can bring that into our fantasy worlds, I think that it can really Mm -hmm. add to not just like the world building depth of it, but the thematic depth of it too.
2: Um, Yeah. I think I've always loved that about, you know, really the cost of magic, right. It's kind of connected into that idea that there is a, there is a cost to it. I think the best magic systems are not just pretty. They're not just magic for the sake of magic, right. They're not, I, I always struggle too with like healing magic that just ma- magically makes everyone better and, and there aren't deformed people right there aren't disabled people we don't have any we don't have to look at any of that in this world that is so problematic for me um, and I want the, I, there needs to be a cost and there needs to be like the real logic behind it I think to, to make it make sense um, and in that way I think fabric's a great way I mean I, I was thinking when you talked about earlier you know what clothing and in fantasy made you think a lot and i think you know, mithril was probably the first thing that i was like wow this thing is so important but what did people do to get it you know what did people what what did it wreak on poor Balin and <laughs> everyone in moria right well and, they, and, and, and they
0: too deep and they make the you know point right away when they first introduced mithril that it was made for this particular piece was made for an elven prince Yes. Right, like this. No, yes. it's not just for anybody. It's for somebody who could shell out.
2: Yeah. and then you have this little, you know, hobbit wearing it and and representing. And again, I think that's another thing that that Tolkien is surprisingly good at. Right, there's this sense that this time has passed, and this is a relic of an of a past that is no longer exists, and how precious that is, and it becomes an important part of the of the story and the the, the larger lore. And I think that's the best possible scenario for having fashion and having having them you know the ring one would argue is also a fashion piece right and it's it's beautifully simple but it also is the worst thing in the world
0: I love that the dark lord could have really done anything and he went with accessories Mm
3: -hmm. (laughs) I respect that choice yeah Uh, yeah, Mm -hmm. I I mean clearly it works
2: (laughs) could have been made at Tiffany's I mean just it's very straightforward could have been all the flash. I'm also no. picturing
3: in my head like what would have happened had Lobelia Sackville Baggins gotten her hands on the Mithril. She'd been like, "Oh, we can remake this. We can refashion this. We're gonna make this. <laughs> that thing's an antique. We can I'd make like to it see much her nicer. Try. That would I'd be like to funny. I could see. Oh my gosh, I can actually see it as like a little animated short, like Lobelia versus the Mithril, as she's trying to like reforge <laughs> it into something. I mean, it's essentially knit, so well, she'd make she'd
2: make Lotho do it. I mean, she'd oversee <laughs> it while he's doing it, but.
1: Well, we did touch a little bit on influencers and like who who shapes the direction that fashion goes into. We we touched on that a little, and like I I do feel like that's a thing you don't see too much of in fantasy fiction of who are who are like the fashion icons of their world. I did play with that in Velocity, where I had my main character's older sister was was like the center of the tabloid. And so whatever she was wearing then became the thing that people were wearing the next few days in the rest of the city and then weaponized that in, in, in the end of it, where she was like, Ooh, I can get everyone to wear what I'm wearing so I can create chaos by, (laughs) by telling them what to wear. And yeah, I, I think that's a fun thing that, that I don't think gets used anywhere near enough of using People's mm-hmm. ability to shape the direction of fashion and shape what does become a thing. And if there, are like, and how there can, you know, can that create chaos within the city of like, oh, we're, we're all going to wear this kind of hat. This, to wear that kind of hat, we need this kind of fabric. And to get that kind of fabric, we need to be, you know, importing that from across the sea and to import that across the sea. And then suddenly you have a complete collapse of the system because everybody needs this hat.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> And that that has happened before with like beaver hats and stuff like that. So yeah, I mean it's 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 not it's not a a, a long <laughs> a long speculation. I think related to that, what I like to do is occasionally with certain characters because I know it's it's one of my quirks, right? But I also want to think of people who, like you said, don't care as much. That was one of the big differences in um, so Queen of None is the first book in this in this connected series of books, and Queen of Fury is the follow up. And in Queen of None, it's narrated by Anna. And she's always had everything in terms of fashion. She's never had to think about it. She was a princess and then she was a, a, a queen and then she was a widowed queen. So it's not something she notices because if everyone's dressing you, they're going to give you the nicest things possible, right? Occasionally she'll be like, well, wear the green to match this because my son's wearing green and I want to show solidarity. But she doesn't really care. And I think it's important because she she is privileged and she is has her spots where she's she's not really paying attention. What I did was different in the second book is that uh, the main female character is a, She comes back to her kingdom and finds like, her father is, is, has dementia and she has to put on this, She she's usually been this fashion forward person who literally was the tastemaker and now she's at home and she's drunk and angry and, and sad, but she has to put on a show, but she doesn't have the materials because their whole kingdom is sort of fissured kinging out, right? And so the scene that I got to write was fun because from one perspective, Gowan is watching her enter in armor and he sees this towering sort of Viking tall woman with, you know, gorgeous red hair and all the bearing in the world. But then the next scene is her and you find out that they literally cobbled this together from... Curtains and things that they had leftover scrap, and she was able to carry it and tell a story that they were able to buy hook, line, and sinker. And I think that was really fun for me because it was such a change from the previous world where fashion was there, but it was kind of, you know, hand wave because of that perspective. But bringing in two new characters, you can see how powerful just wearing something right can change how other people see you and, and can have that message. And I think in in this day and age, we we do that more. Um, I love thrift store shopping. I love vintage clothes. I've, I've, I have li- I like fashion. I really do. But I always try to bring in stuff that's from before. And then people are like, where did you get that from? That's so cool. And it's like, I, this thing is like 40 years old. <laughs> it's, it's it's from the thrift shop up the street.
0: Um, also, I love that your character likes Scarlett ohara a curtain dress. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yes.
2: Excellent. There's a bit of that. <laughs>
3: Not not quite the whole curtain rod Carol Burnett yeah, situation. I was just gonna but say, yeah, did I have the Carol
0: Burnett like?
3: <laughs> it's something I haven't played with as much as I'd like to. I think who is who are the influencers? But I was thinking about it, and I do sort of slip it into the corners of conversation in in the oven cycle into Aula's gossip, and she notices she she and she makes snide comments because she's you know teasing her friends and things, and and she's saying like, oh my gosh, did you see what Crispinella had in her hair? Is she really trying to bring Bithynian styles into fashion? That is not going to happen. But it's a character note for her because what it really shows you is that Mm -hmm. she pays attention to everyone in every room she is in and she notices the fashion but she's watching everything and making note of everything that's Mm -hmm. happening and she makes herself seem frivolous and inconsequential sometimes by commenting only on like the surface level things but it's like she knows what's going on she's got the number of everybody in that room and yeah I think that's fun, but I'd I'd like to play with it more. I'd like that's something I'd like to explore more deeply. It's one of the things I loved about your books, Rowena, is especially the first one is so focused on like who makes the dress, how important is the dress, who wears the dress, when do they wear the dress, for what occasion do they wear the dress, in front of whom do they wear the dress, yeah. sending a message. <laughs> it's it super cool. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think
0: one of the, I, the dorky thing that I really like doing in terms of the like how do we how do we influence fashion in the second book. Um, the main character kind of invents that worlds version of the Chemise Loren. And then she's so so her her client, who's kind of like the fashion forward, you know it girl wears this thing and then everyone starts copying it and she sees it like cropping up places like knockoffs of her dress basically and it's kind of like this weird bittersweet proud moment for her that she's like people are copying my style people are copying my style like people are copying i'm not i didn't get that commission what the hell (laughs) flattered but also rude yeah
3: excuse yeah
2: but it, and that, that that reminds me of, of course, Marie, Marie Antoinette's chemise and, and wearing, you know, she wore this muslin peasant, supposed to be like a shepherdess gown, and everyone just scorned her for it. And it was shocking and terrible. And how dare she? And then everyone yeah. wore them.
0: <laughs> and Vigée Lebrun was painting everyone in yes. them. And it's like,
2: everyone everyone in them, like, how scandalous. Let's, where can I get mine? <laughs>
0: right. I have, by the way, a theory that that, that was actually youth style. Um, because little girls at that time were wearing white cotton dresses that are mm-hmm. not not that dissimilar to the chemise a la ren and also coral was really common for little girls and both mm-hmm. these things crop up in like 1790s fashion wearing the chemise a la ren wearing coral jewelry I'm like they were totally trying to dress like teenagers <laughs> it's, it was that it's innocence like, right? it's like right yeah. this innocence this like trying to like channel this like youthful energy and this innocence and I'm like I don't and now I want to go and see what other examples there are. Are there any earlier examples of like copying clothing that is way too young for you, but kind of like adopting it as an adult fashion because you've been doing well, it L- Lolita ever fashion, since, right? for I mean, sure.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you definitely see it in the modern period. You've got Lolita fashion that is like, you know, or, but again, that, that like, the whole other conversation about the male gaze and female fashion, and we could probably talk a whole entire episode <laughs> about that. But I think, I think there is, there is certainly that and, and young people especially in the last hundred years, there have been young people, right? It's like there's this age in between getting married and being a child uh, where you can still make choices in terms of fashion and what that means, your hair up, your hair down, uh, where you wear a smock, you know, boys wearing dresses until they were, um, you know, Potty, walking around, trained, and running around, roughly. potty train, yeah, exactly, much easier. And <laughs> but like <laughs> wearing gorgeous, gorgeous gowns, like not even just like little. These were gorgeous, gorgeous gowns, um, and that just kind of shifts our perspective. But I think, I think that you're totally right in that. That that's 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 a really good theory.
0: I think that we are coming up to the end of our hour, Um, and we always end our guest star episodes by asking you to leave us a gift, Um, a little piece of world building trivia, either related to our episode or not, whatever you feel like bequeathing upon us um, for us to to tuck into our collection.
2: Sure. So this is the one that came up to mind because it still makes me laugh to this day. But uh, in addition to loving fashion, I also love language. And in this particular book I'm writing right now, I'm using old Occitan as the sort of, you know, the, 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 the language of, of the people and trying to build fantasy names and stuff around that. And I've always been fascinated. I've, my degree was in medieval English and medieval studies. So I always wanted to Dive into Old Occitan, that was a language that my people spoke before they came uh, to the colonies. And so I'm, I love names, right? So I have name websites everywhere. My husband was joking that I have like pregnancy ads everywhere because I'm constantly looking at names, but I love to go look at old censuses. That's really the best way to do it because a lot of these websites kind of give you the the not so great stuff. And I'm, I'm going through all of these and looking at all these male names and, um, you know, really interesting because Olacetan is like this, this crossroads of French and Italian and Spanish and Latin. And it just, it's beautiful and strange. And I'm looking through all these really interesting male names. Then there's Steve and it's, and there are like seven of them. And it is—it is a name that that was common in in the 13th and 14th centuries and beyond. But it's from Esteban; it's a shortened version of it. But Steve, you're just going like Steve. If I name my character Steve, I don't think anyone's going to take this book seriously at all. So I love—I love those little aberrations that show us that modernity is just a construction, right? Uh, we've always shortened people's names and. There are Steves in other in other lands and censuses it's from like, hundreds and hundreds of years ago.
0: It's like a a, a gender flipped version of the Tiffany problem.
2: Exactly. It's the yep. Steve problem. It is. It's the same thing. It's the Steve problem. And I joke, Tiffany and Steve could totally have a buddy comedy together. Um, in in old Occitan, France. They could go on a pilgrimage to England and, you know, Tiffany and Steve, no one would ever buy that. Everyone would just be like, What are you talking about? It's yep. amazing.
0: I love it. Well, thank you so much for Steve. (laughs) (laughs) And for coming on. I totally (laughs) want Tiffany and Steve's road
1: trip now. That's what I want. want. (laughs) Tiffany and Steve's excellent adventure. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Perfect. Well, you'll have to come back on sometime and we'll um, live world build Tiffany and Steve's excellent adventure on air. (laughs) Sounds amazing. (laughs) And until then, thank you so much and all the best with all of your writing.
2: Thanks so much for having me. It's been great.
1: Hey you, thanks for listening to this episode of World Building for Masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. Our next episode goes up on March 30th, where we'll be rejoined by Melissa Caruso to talk about inline world building and integrating your writing, editing, and world building processes. If you want to know more about your hosts and the fantastical books we write, links to all that information is on our website at worldbuildingvermaticus.podbeam.com. We really hope you liked this episode. If you did, please do take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review on iTunes. If you've got questions or just want to tell us how cute we are, there's a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter as at WorldBuildCast, and our email is worldbuildcast at gmail.com. We also have a Discord chat room linked in the About the Show page of our website if you want to chat with us and other fans of the podcast. We'd love for you to share the worlds you're making and help us all build until it hurts. <laughs>